What a great day to praise the Lord. Amen. So great to see each and every one of you. We're glad that you are here. I want to begin this morning by saying thank you. We've had a lot of things going on at Southgate this week. Uh, you saw some of the baskets that our ladies class put together. Uh, they do that every year. Our ladies class, if you don't have anything going on on a Wednesday at 10 o'clock, those ladies come and do so many great works. They put together those baskets that were taken to our shut-ins. Uh, those ladies are a backbone of so many things that happen here at Southgate, and I'm thankful for what they have done. I'm also thankful for a lot of people. Yesterday it was too wet to have the Easter egg hunt out at our house but they had it here at the building, and that took a lot of volunteers. So those of you that cooked food and brought eggs and put eggs together and dressed up as a bunny rabbit and everything else, we're thankful uh, to so much work that went into that great time. We had a big crowd here, and I know they enjoyed those times. I also want to thank uh, any of you that are visiting with us today. If, you are, if you're here visiting with us, we want you to know you're our honored guest. Uh, we believe there is no better place you could be this morning than to be here in the presence of God to be able to worship him. Uh, we believe that he wants to bless our lives, that he wants to bless our relationships, that he wants to help us regardless of our past, regardless of our difficulties in life, that he is the answer for the things that we do. And we are so glad uh, that you are with us this morning. I'm also thankful for another reason. I want to welcome all those that are gathering us online. I got a text from Blake Height this morning via Jadonna. And I don't know if you know or not, but whenever Blake would be here, he would send me various messages before lessons and before uh, an Easter sermon. I got, uh, this sermon better be a banger. <laughs> Only Blake Height. So we're glad uh, for Blake and everyone else who's watching online as well. Uh, we have a great topic to study this morning. I hope that you have your Bibles with you. If you do, you, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 27. Matthew chapter 27. It's always uh, darkest before dawn. At Southgate on Sunday nights, we've been walking through a lot of different pictures of Jesus, and we've been using the, the gospel of Matthew in order to do that. Uh, we've walked through a lot of different things of Jesus interacting with different people, Jesus with different miracles, things that he was uh, doing in his life. And as we've walked through that, we've now come to this uh, point that we see Jesus and how dark a period that he has entered. Jesus has been betrayed by one of his own. Judas has sold Jesus to the religious leaders and he's going to tell them where he is. Jesus has been denied by Peter, a man that has told him even in the same night that I won't betray you, I would die for you, and he knows now that Peter has denied him not once, not twice, but three times. All the other apostles have scattered, and Jesus has been left alone. He's been put through an all-night trial, found guilty. Why? Because of religious leaders that are envious of him a corrupt religious class. He's come before a political governor, Pilate, who simply wants to keep a riot from happening, and he's willing to wash his hands of what is happening just to keep peace and calm from a crowd. He was wanting to avoid a riot by a crowd who has chanted, Crucify him, crucify him. Matthew chapter 27, verse 26 says that Jesus is scourged. It's a punishment that's been called the near death. 
his back has been destroyed, irreparable damage has been done for some people, this in and of itself could lead to death. Matthew chapter 27 verse 31 tells us that Jesus is mocked. After beating him, they dress him in a scarlet robe. They wrap up thorns, thorns that were made because of the sin of Adam. And they wrap these thorns up that represent the, the sin of all mankind and they put it on his head as a crown and they mock him and he's led away to be crucified. That's how Matthew's account of the crucifixion sets the stage. Now you're given four different accounts to the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. You see it in all four Gospels. You're going to have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And to get the full picture, you would look at all those different accounts. And certain accounts are going to give additional information that other accounts may not have. Luke will talk about the thief that's on the cross and his cry out to Jesus. John will tell us about Jesus there talking to his mother Mary and the apostle John as well and, and the interaction that he has with them. For this morning, we're going to be looking simply at Matthew's account. Matthew chapter 27, verse 32. says, As they went out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. They compelled this man to carry his cross. When they came to a place called Golgotha, they offered him wine to drink mixed with gall. But when he tasted it, he would not drink it. When they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. Then they sat down and kept watch over him there. The all-night trial, the beating that Jesus has suffered has left him so weakened to a point that the executioners that are taking him outside of the city in order to execute him see his weakness. They grab another man and they compel him in order to help him carry his cross to the place where he will be killed. He's offered wine with gall to drink. Most likely this would be something that could possibly dull his senses, make it where he wouldn't feel exactly what was going on and Jesus is going to refuse it. He's taken to a place called Golgotha, the place of a skull, a place where no one would want to go, a place where people that had been in that city had seen many people executed. They had seen the, uh, this use of crucifixion to humiliate, to discourage anyone else from going against the Roman government. They've seen those individuals. They probably shielded their eyes and their children's eyes from those who were suffering at the place of a skull. The soldiers gamble over who's going to take his clothes home that day. At this point, the waiting game begins. I can only imagine what was going through the minds of so many people on that day. For the soldiers, it's another day. It's my job. They're probably thankful that the Sabbath is going to be the next day. That means these three individuals that they've been given the responsibility of killing, well, they're going to have to be killed by the end of the day, and they know they're going to be able to speed it up at the end of the day. Maybe they're just waiting for the end of a work week. Religious leaders are there, and the day they've been waiting on, the thing they've been working towards, they've been planning towards vengeance on this man who has taken so much attention away from them. They've given him up because of the envy that they had for him and now they're finally going to see Jesus killed. I'm curious. Is Satan watching this and starting to wonder if he can actually win? 
Is there a chance that the light of the world can be defeated by darkness? Are the angels of heaven watching in horror, waiting for an order to go save Jesus, but the order never comes? We wonder what is going on in Jesus' mind. As you read all the different accounts, you'll see a couple different things that he's saying, things that are on his heart, forgiveness, compassion, love. I don't know if Jesus is still thinking there's some other way or not, or if he's just ready for the end to come. <clears throat> but as we look at the story this morning, I want us to think of three questions. I want to put three questions to you and the first one that I want to put to you this morning is what do you do with the son of God on a tree that was going to be a question that was going to be happening as they're sitting there waiting you have different people looking at him different crowds and different individuals but all of them are going to see the son of God hanging on a tree and you're going to say what exactly do you do with that we see in the verses that follow that Pilate is going to want to put a sign up above his head. He sends out, this is Jesus, the king of the Jews. Pilate is going to verbally give him honor. He's going to declare who he is. He's going to actually put out what is true, but he's not going to give him any of the honor whatsoever. And you know what people do with Jesus on a tree? They sit there and say, well, yeah, I believe in Jesus, and I may say something, but they don't put him in the place where he ought to be. They don't exalt him. They don't really hold on to that truth. It doesn't change their life. They may say something that is true, but they're not giving him honor with their life. And that's where Pilate is. He's listening to the crowd. He's washing his hands. He really doesn't want to be changed or inconvenienced because of the Son of God on a tree, but there's something about the fact that he gives him the correct title with none of the honor. Verse 39 says, Those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you're the Son of God, come down from the cross. Individuals who are just walking by who have heard about Jesus, who've heard some of the things that he says, what are they going to do? They're going to mock him. They're going to make fun of him. They're going to belittle him. And isn't the world full of people who are ready to do that this morning? They're going to mock the idea of the Son of God on a tree. They're going to deride him. These individuals come and say, look, save yourselves. They shake their hands on him. And what are they doing? They're challenging him to save himself. But as they do that, they have no idea that their solution to the plan is going to take away their only hope at deliverance. See, they're fooled into thinking that suffering points to guilt. That pain never brings about any good. And what you do with the Son of God on a tree is he needs to be saved from that. He needs to come down where that those problems are not there. But that's not God's number one desire. God's number one desire, they think, would be to take his son off of a cross. But God's desire is not for comfort. It's not for the removal of pain that Jesus is going through at this moment. But instead, the Father's desire is one of compassion. Compassion for you. 
compassion for me. Because what these people want to say, hey, take him off of the cross. There shouldn't be pain. There shouldn't be suffering. Get rid of all these things and make life good. But God knew that this suffering that Jesus was going through would give you hope and would give me hope. And the only way that our place could be taken was for this price to be paid. God's desire was one of compassion for you and me and an eternal joy that would only be possible through the removal of our sin by the sacrifice of the perfect Lamb of God. To add insult to injury, the Son of God must hang on a tree and listen to the individuals, the religious leaders that he had to correct during the week, the religious leaders that tried to trap him in every way, the religious leaders that he has pronounced woes upon in their life. He has to listen to them, make fun of him, mock him, challenge him and revile him. So also the chief priest with the scribes and the elders mocked him, saying he saved others, he cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel, let him come down now from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusts in God, let him deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I am the son of God. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. What do the religious people do in that day? They say, we need you to show me more. You say you're the son of God, show the fact that you are. Everything that Jesus has done was not enough for them. All the miracles that he had performed, all the lessons that he taught, all the ways that they couldn't catch him in his words, that he spoke truth every time they watched and saw miracles that took place. They saw his power, they saw everything, but you know what they wanted from the son of God on a tree? You need to show me more. And that's what people do today. Jesus has come, has lived, he has taught, he has shown who he is, but they say, I need you to show me more so that then I'll believe in you. You haven't shown me enough yet. So what do you do with son of God on a tree? You know what the father does? He chooses to leave him there. Now from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. About the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is my God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? Some of the bystanders hearing it said, this man is calling Elijah. One of them at once ran and took a sponge and filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But others said, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. Matthew tells us that the skies went dark from the sixth hour. That was going to be noon until the ninth hour, three o'clock in the afternoon. And for three hours, the Son of God is going to hang on this tree and the sky is almost going to hide itself from him. Darkness comes over the land. And after Jesus has hung there for three hours, he cries out his final words. Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus calls out a question. Peter gives us the answer to that question. 
1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24. says, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. What's happening in this moment of time from the beginning until the end of time of all mankind, everything hinges upon this moment and Jesus cries out, God, why am I having to be here? Why are you having to leave me? And the reason the Father has to leave the Son to hang on the tree is because of my sins. It's because of your sins, because of what you have done. Those things had to be paid for. And as Jesus bore our sins in his body, the Father turns his back on his Son. But he did it for a reason. So the things that I've done, so the things that you have done can be washed away and forgiven so that we can make a decision that I'm not going to live the way the world lives, I'm going to die to sin, and I'm instead going to live to righteousness. He stayed on that cross. He bore those sins. He was forsaken so we could be saved, saved from this world and from doing what the world is telling us to do, to be totally different people that are pointing to the one who is hanging on the tree. Jesus cries out with a loud voice. John 19, verse 30 tells us what he says. He says, it is finished. And he yielded up his spirit. And the deed was done that shook the earth and veiled the sun. Jesus faced the end of every human life from the beginning of time. From the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve were there and God said, look, don't eat of this tree and the day that you eat of this tree, you will surely die. And they made a choice to go against the will of God and whenever they did that, they died. They didn't die physically that day. They were gonna die spiritually. They were gonna be separated from God. And that spiritual separation from God would eventually lead to their physical separation of their soul from their spirit and death was gonna come and everyone who has ever lived in the history of mankind has faced that death beside a couple that God has taken on with him. Jesus faces the enemy of every human life, that enemy of death. You looked in verses 51 through 53, it says that the curtain was torn in two the curtain that separated the holy place from the holy of holies. Says that the earth shook, that saints that were there were gonna rise up and those who had fallen asleep were raised. Many came out and were seen in the holy city. Many people appeared and they saw all those things and as you read the beginning of the church, these same religious leaders, these same priests were gonna come around and start following Jesus. They were gonna become Christians. Why in the world were the individuals that were crying out for his crucifixion? Why in the world would individuals that didn't believe in who, what brought about the change in their heart? It was the things that they saw. And you even see it among the soldiers. Matthew chapter 27, verse 54. When the centurion and those who were with him keeping watch over Jesus saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, truly, this was the Son of God. A rich man named Joseph is going to ask for his body. 
Joseph of Arimathea, this is the same man that we read about in John chapter 3. John chapter 3 comes in the cover of darkness. And he says, you've got to come from God because nobody can do the things you're doing unless he comes from God. And Jesus is going to have a conversation with Joseph. He's going to tell him, unless you be born of water and the Spirit, you'll in no wise enter the kingdom of heaven. And they're going to have this conversation about being born again and about the need uh, for water, for baptism. But now you see that he's going to have a little more courage. He goes to Pilate and he says, can I have the body of Jesus off of that tree and he's given it he wraps it in linen clothing and he takes it to his tomb that had never been used he says that a great stone is rolled to cover the entrance of the tomb as Mary Magdalene and the other Mary watch as you read through the end of that chapter you see that the Jewish leaders are concerned they know what Jesus has said. They, has said. they know that he said that he would come back again and they go to Pilate and they say, Pilate, his disciples are gonna come and they're gonna try to steal his body. And when they steal his body, they'll act like he was raised and the end of this situation is gonna be worse than the first. Pilate says, you have soldiers, see to it yourself. Guard it as secure as you can. And they're gonna come and this huge stone that's rolled over the tomb, they're gonna seal it and they're gonna place two guards set up there at the side of it to make sure that this body will not leave the tomb. And once again, creation waits. Sabbath, Saturday, the Sabbath after Passover comes. I figure the apostles are crying. These women are weeping. Those who thought maybe Jesus was their hope are in shock. The soldiers are taking their day off. The religious leaders are probably talking about how happy they are about the events of the other day. The women prepare for Sunday morning. Their plan is to go back and to take Jesus' body and to give it care and honor that they believe that it deserves. But the one thing that's not happening on Saturday is no one is expecting a risen Lord. It's not the way life works. We live and we die. Jesus has come and he's tried to point it out to people, but it's too great to understand. It's too much to take in the idea that at the point of death, that is not the end of my life, but someone can conquer death and none of them understand. None of them are there. There's not a crowd waiting on Sunday morning, but Sunday morning is coming nonetheless. This day waits. They're all wondering what's going to happen, but on the next day, Jesus will come back. Matthew chapter 28, verses 1 through 6. Now after the Sabbath, towards the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake. For an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, his clothing white as snow. 
For fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you came to seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen as he said. Come and see the place where they lay. On this day, on this day, the Sunday after Passover, two women go to care for the body of Jesus, but they found no body. Instead, they found an angel who is given the highest honor of anyone to come at the beginning of all time, at the beginning of good news, the angel that had been sent. The angel who had appearance like lightning and his clothing was like snow on the ground is the one who's given the honor of saying, you know what? Death has not conquered him. He is not here. He is risen. The Lord is risen. And this message from heaven above that even the angels in heaven are wondering what's going to happen. He comes back and he tells everybody, he is not here, it is risen. Everything about the future from that day forward is changed. Why? Because he is not here, he is risen. And those women are given the honor of hearing the gospel message. The message that changes everything. The message that no one was ready for. Jesus Christ came more than just to help you in this moment. He came to help you throughout all eternity. And as you come to find the tomb, you need to know that it is empty. It's empty until this day. Come here and look where he laid. Those two women came in and said, look, I want you to see the empty tomb and then I want you to do something else. I want you to go quickly and tell the disciples he is risen. They left quickly, it says, with great joy. And as they left, they meet Jesus. What does he say? Don't be afraid. Go and tell them. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. And it brings us to our second question this morning. What should we take away from an empty tomb? As you read this story and you see the declaration of the angel from on high, what should you take away from an empty tomb? The first thing I want you to take away is the fact that death is defeated. It's hard for us to grasp. Because we think so many times that death is the end. We escort bodies to cemeteries and we lay them in the ground and we deal with the grief and the pain of death. But the empty tomb says that death is not the end of those who are walking with the Lord. Death is the beginning. Death is defeated. It is not something that we have to fear. The sting of death is sin, but Jesus has given us the victory over death. What else should we take from this tomb? This empty tomb shows that Satan has lost. We've got an enemy and he's still working hard and he is flailing with everything he has to destroy as many lives as possible because he's already lost. The only way that he can cause harm to the creator is to try to take you away from him. So he's throwing everything in the world at you. He's trying to get you to focus on this world instead of that empty tomb. He's trying to get you to set your priorities based on what you want and what you think and what your body desires. 
He's coming at you with all that he's got, but I need to tell you this morning, he's defeated. That's what the empty tomb tells you. And if you decide to go with the one who walked out of that tomb, you're gonna be able to defeat him as well. Jesus will bless you in whatever way you need in fighting that enemy because the empty tomb tells us he is defeated. Jesus is Lord. What does the empty tomb cement in this world? That Jesus is Lord there is hope. The price that had to be paid for our sins has been nailed to a tree. Forgiveness is available. And joy can be there in spite of our circumstances. Why? Because death is not the end. There's life after death. And not just any life, but eternal life. This empty tomb also means we must choose we have a decision to make. You can't come and hear this story and walk out and not make a decision. You're making a decision and really we make it every day about what we're gonna do with the Son of God hanging on a tree and with an empty tomb. You're gonna make a decision this morning. And I wanna ask you my third question, which is what do we do with the risen Lord? They wanted more than anything to quash this story. Matthew will talk about how they get the guards in and they pay them a bunch of money to lie and say, yeah, we went to sleep and somebody stole the body, but the problem is none of them are ever gonna produce a body and they're never gonna find a tomb with it in it and they're gonna tell those stories. That tomb is gonna be empty. They can't deny the risen Lord. They just try to stop people from believing it, but it doesn't work. We are sitting here today 2,000 years almost removed from that day, still declaring that that tomb was empty. Why? Because it was true. But what do you do with the risen Lord? He is risen, but is he your Lord? This year at Southgate, we've been talking about discipleship. <clears throat> being a disciple is not just about being someone who acknowledges that someone existed. It's not about just saying, if questioned, that yeah, I guess I believe something. It's not about showing up a couple times a year and, and thinking about a good story and thinking about those ideas. To be a disciple, we've talked about what it means. It's a, not just about knowing a lot about someone. It's not just about studying a book. It's not just about honoring somebody with some words every now and then. Jesus tells us that we can prove that we're disciples. Our theme verse this year is John chapter 15, verse eight. By this my Father is glorified <clears throat> that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. What does Jesus say? Jesus says that he is expecting us to bear fruit. What is that? When you walk up to an apple tree, you know it's an apple tree, why? Because you're seeing some apples. If you go to an orange tree, you can identify that tree by what is hanging on it. And Jesus says, by this you can prove that you're my disciples because the things that you do is gonna give evidence that you have made me Lord and that you're one of my disciples. And what does Jesus expect? <clears throat> he expects others to be able to walk up and look at us and say, she believes in Jesus Christ. He is a disciple of Jesus Christ. So you have to decide, what will you do with Jesus? What Jesus did was he showed how much he loved you. 
Jesus made the decision, even though he could have called those legions of angels from heaven, even though he could have relieved himself, even though he could have come off of that cross, he didn't. Why? Because he decided to stay on that cross for you and for me. What did he do? He came and he was willing to die. And he was buried in that tomb and he was raised again, praise God. What's the evidence he's looking for my life and for yours? Well, you make a decision to die to sin. It's a life or death decision. Sin cost Jesus everything. And you know what he asked you to do? He says, I died for you. Will you die to sin? I want your life to be blessed. I want your relationships to be blessed. I want your interaction in this life to be a blessing. I want to take you into eternity. But the way you're going to do that is to live for me instead of living for the world. You're going to have to die to sin. You can't just do what you want in this world. I died for you. Will you die for me? Jesus allowed his body to be taken off of that tree and buried. And what does he ask? He asked for you to be buried with him. Romans 6 points the picture for us. It paints the picture at the beginning of Romans 6. He says, as many of you have been buried with Christ, been baptized into Christ, have been buried with him. Jesus says, I was buried. Will you be buried? Are you willing to tell other people that you believe Jesus Christ is the Son of God? That's evidence. That's fruit. Are you willing to repent from sin and turn away from it? That's evidence. That's fruit. Are you willing to be buried? And you're going to say, I believe Jesus was buried and I want to be buried with him. And just like Jesus was raised up, I want to be raised up. And then you have the beginning of a brand new life with the Lord on your side. Are you ready to do that this morning? If you're ready, <clears throat> you can live a life with nothing to fear. I love Jesus' words there. As he declares to the women and they've seen him, he says, hey, don't be afraid. Go tell somebody. I don't think there's a better thought we could end with this morning than don't be afraid. Go tell somebody. There's a lot of Christians in this building. We need to go and tell people the good news. If you're not a Christian yet, we want you to join us. Jesus invites you to join us. If you believe what we have said this morning, if you're willing to confess him as the Lord of your life, if you're ready to turn away from sin and be buried with him, he'll raise you up to walk a brand new life. We want to invite you to that life. This morning, also though, we've got a lot of folks that maybe you haven't been here in a while. Satan's trying to tell you, let this be your last Sunday. Don't come back. Keep living your life. You heard the story, go on. Don't change anything. I want you to listen to a better voice. To a God who loved you. To a God who put his son on the tree for you. To a God who has the power to bring him out of that tomb. To make a decision to go with him from this day forward. He can forgive your past. He can bless your future. But you have to choose him now. If we can help you in any way, we invite you to come as we stand.